This is Our American Stories, and we tell all sorts of stories here about everything. Art, business, music, history, and as often as we can, about military history and about leadership. And on this day in history in 1802, Thomas Jefferson, president then, signed an act to formally establish a military academy at West Point in New York. And today we're joined by two Army officers currently teaching at West Point to learn more about this remarkable American institution. And before we, jo- but before we are joined by Colonel Ty Sedgley and Lieutenant Colonel Sean Scully, I wanted to dig into a very famous speech given in 1962 by General Douglas MacArthur, his last. And the first thing I want to do is play the very ending of this speech, read a couple of other passages, and then bring on our two guests for the hour. Let's take a listen. In the evening of my memory, always I come back to West Point. Always there echoes and re-echoes duty, honor, country. Today marks my final roll call with you. But I want you to know that when I cross the river, my last conscious thoughts will be of the core and the core and the core. I bid you farewell. And again, that was General Douglas MacArthur joining us for the hour to talk about West Point. Colonel Ty Sedgley leads West Point's history department, one of the largest at West Point. He earned a Ph.D. in history from the Ohio State University. And Lieutenant, Lieutenant Colonel Sean Scully is in charge of the American history program at West Point and holds a Ph.D. in American history from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. And of course, in addition to their academic qualifications and fascinating day jobs, these guys have served our nation in peace and war in the Middle East, Europe, and beyond. They're sort of like your favorite professors from college, if those professors also practiced in the arts of deployment and warfare. Gentlemen, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. You yeah, bet. Thanks for having me back, Lee. And thank you. And I want to start with you, uh, Colonel Sedgley. I wanted to read you a, a couple of excerpts. And by the way, folks, for those of you who didn't quite hear what we just played, it was MacArthur at the end of this beautiful speech. And he says this, In the evening of my memory, always I come back to West Point. Always there echoes and re-echoes. Duty, honor, country. Today marks my final roll call with you, but I want you to know that when I cross the river, my last conscious thoughts will be of the core. And the core. And the core. And so Colonel Colonel, uh, Sedgley, talk about that uh, excerpt and what it means to you. Oh, boy, I I love that. You know, two things run through my mind. The first is... Uh, we have several people from the class of 65 that, that help us at West Point, um, and they were there at that speech, and I've talked to many of them about that mesmerizing time as when they were 18, 19-year-olds, and MacArthur was there as an 82-year-old in, this sort of a, in frail health, had come up from the city and gave that talk. The other thing is that the story behind it, which is 
that the one of the people on the stage put a small cassette recorder and played it during that speech because the Army Signal Corps messed it up and that speech would have been lost forever if not for this one cadet who put a, put a cassette speech in there. But when I listen to the speech, I get goosebumps every time I hear it because it goes to our mission of educating, inspiring cadets for service to the nation, to create leaders of character, and nobody understood that better than MacArthur. So I, when I hear it, I get goosebumps as an American, uh, as someone who teaches at West Point, uh, and just as a human being. You bet. And Colonel Scully, let me read one part of this speech to you. Uh, MacArthur said this in the middle of the speech, and this is the duty, honor, country speech. Folks, go to Google and just read this to your kids. It's worth it. The soldier, above all other men, is required to practice the greatest act of religious training, sacrifice. In battle and in the face of danger and death, he discloses those divine attributes, attributes which his maker gave when he created man in his own image. No physical courage and no brute instinct can take the place of the divine help which alone can sustain him. However horrible the incidents of war may be, the soldier who is called upon to offer and to give his life for his country is the noblest development of mankind. And talk about that, Colonel Scully. Yeah, Lee, well, the, uh, the thought that comes to my mind every time I hear that is about um, the, the sacred duty of the officers coming out of West Point to be the best leaders of character that they can possibly be for their soldiers. Because in the end, um, it's not only going to be um, the officers who are going to be asked to make that sacrifice, but the soldiers who are following their leadership and executing their decisions on the battlefield that will be called um, to make that to make that final call. Um, and so every time I hear it, that's what I think about. I think about you know, what is it that we're doing here at West Point with these cadets when we're uh, teaching them to become officers? Um, and, and who are they going to be when they go out into the field leading those soldiers in combat? You bet. And what a, what a mission and what a calling that is. And when we come back, we're going to be joined for the hour to talk about all things West Point. Colonel Ty Sedgley and Lieutenant Colonel Sean Scully. This is Our American Stories. We're talking about West Point for the hour. I grew up in northern New Jersey, and I was a lucky boy. My dad was an Air Force guy, but he would routinely take the whole family up to watch the cadets in action, to just meander around that part of the Hudson River Valley and the beauty of West Point. If you ever get a a time to travel up in that part of upstate New York, about an hour and a half north of New York City, take the family and visit one of the great institutions in America, West Point. This is Our American Stories. When we come back, more with the Colonels.
is Our American Stories for the hour. West Point was established on this day in history in 1802, and so we're going to talk about West Point, this most important of American military institutions and military training institutions. I wanted to talk about one more portion of this MacArthur speech because I think it's so important. And here's what MacArthur told the young cadets there. And again, he's in his 80s now, and this is his farewell address. And this was when generals were giants, and not that they're not now, folks, but in World War II, oh my goodness, just imagine being a young man listening to MacArthur in this, in this small, what I think it was a dining hall. Here's what MacArthur said. This does not mean that you are warmongers. On the contrary, the soldier above all other people prays for peace, for he must suffer and bear the deepest wounds and scars of war. Colonel Sedgley, talk about that. Well, I think that is what, when we say that we wear the uniform uh, and serve, that's what we mean. We have the United States above our uh, left breast, and that means something incredible to MacArthur, and it means it to me, too. We are servants of the United States of America. We do the missions that the United States sends us on, and we are no better or worse than that. But having said that, we are... Uh, the, the greatest nation on earth, and the fact that we get to serve that is incredible. But what the nation asks of us is incredibly difficult. And we have to go to foreign lands uh, and be willing to both kill and be killed uh, to further the interests of the United States people. And our client, the United States of America and its people, demand the utmost of us. And, uh, and in, in the 240 years that the U.S. Army has been around, I don't think we've ever let them down, and that's one thing that certainly I am uh, cognizant of every time I go into the classroom and every time I put on the uniform is we are being asked something very, very special, and it's, and it, and it, and it's a, a duty for us to, uh, uh, to serve this nation. We have to be prepared to do it at a moment's notice. Colonel Scully, let's start with you since you specialize in early American history. And we learned earlier that it was President Thomas Jefferson who signed an act to formally establish West Point. Talk to us a bit about the founding of West Point and why that location, why a military academy at all, and who were some of the key people that started this? Okay, Lee, that's great questions. So, um, actually, West Point was... Um, was first became important to American history and to the nation in 1775 at the very beginning of the American Revolution. Um, George Washington and others, uh, both on the American and British side, recognized the strategic importance of the Hudson River um, connecting by water uh, through several different waterways, the city of New York on the Atlantic, <clears throat> and the cities of Quebec and Montreal in Canada. And, of course, the British had forces in Canada. The Americans had New York. Um, and so from the very beginning, there was, there was a contest to control the river. Uh, and by 1776, they realized that this outcrop, uh, this jut of a west point uh, into the river, was going to be the key to controlling it. And it became the center of a series of fortifications that were built by the Americans to maintain control of that waterway. Now, in 1777, they briefly lost control of it uh, when the British did sail up from New York City, um, but then regained control. And then from 1778 to 1783, the American Army, the Continental Army, maintained uh, a whole fortification uh, system 
here at West Point that was charged with protecting a great chain um, that was put across the river to stop any British ships from traveling uh, north from New York City. Uh, and so from, from that period on, this West Point has, has remained garrisoned by uh, American soldiers. So it's the longest continuously manned garrison in the United States. Now, um, after the war, this was the site where the Continental Army was disbanded. This is the site where um, most of the enlisted soldiers were sent home. Many of the officers that were left traveled down to New York City to, to reoccupy the city when the British had left at the, at the end of the war. And, um, and then it remained a garrison for a very small American army until 1802. Now, in 1802, at this point, Thomas Jefferson is president, but many of the officers are actually uh, politically connected to the Federalist Party, which was Jefferson's opposition party at the time. Uh, at the same, you know, in, in addition to that, um, Jefferson was looking west for expansion of the country, uh, and he was very interested in um, engineering needs, scientific needs that might come about uh, should the United States continue to expand westward. Uh, and of course, you know, in 1803, he, he actually does um, purchase the, the Louisiana Purchase, um, greatly expanding the United States. So he's already thinking about this westward expansion, but he's also thinking about the fact that he has an army that has officers in it he's not sure he can trust. Um, and so he decides uh, that, that a military academy would actually be a good idea for the United States because it could do two things. Um, first and foremost, it would train uh, young American men in the art, in the sciences of engineering. Um, and that was, in fact, the, the core purpose of the academy at the time was to teach engineering to these Army officers. But the other thing that it did, and you can see it in how the appointment process was set up for the academy. Um, so to get appointed to the academy, you had to, you had to uh, show that you had the potential to be able to uh, succeed, but you also had to be appointed by your local congressman or senator. Um, and at this time, in 1802, the Republicans had won a very, very large victory in the election of 1800, uh, it looked like things were going to continue to go their way. And that would mean that this would serve, the academy could serve, as the, the proper education for good Republican officers that would um, maintain their position as subservient to their civilian uh, masters, if you will. And I think Jefferson saw this as a way to, to do both. Right to to create um, a core of officers, young men who understood engineering and could solve the coming problems of westward expansion, while at the same time maintaining what he considered was the proper political outlook, and and in some cases, right that that in fact they voted <laughs> perhaps in the right way. Right, and Colonel Scully, let's let's remember that we didn't. We also might not have wanted to depend on foreign engineers and foreign artillerists. In other words, how do we wean ourselves from the dependency of outside export, experts as we decide our westward launch and expansion? Talk a bit about that, and then when we come back, 
we'll be joined by Colonel uh, Sedgley as well with uh, more questions. But ans- answer that if you could as well. Yeah, that's, that's, Lee, that's a, that's a great point. So, of course, West Point itself, the fortress itself, was built um, by engineers from Europe. Um, we, we didn't have many uh, professionally trained engineers in the colonies before the start of the revolution. And so when, uh, when the war began and we were looking for experts who could help us build fortifications, we first turned to a group of Frenchmen who came over, um, but uh, they proved a little difficult to work with, uh, some of the engineers that had come over from France. And so by 1778, we actually turned to a Polish engineer who had been trained in France, Thaddeus Kosciuszko. And Thaddeus Kosciuszko had actually made himself famous at the Battle of Saratoga. And Washington brought him to West Point uh, to actually take over the building of the, fort, of the fortress, uh, and which he did for a couple of years. And then, um, then he had to move on because Washington needed him in the field, and he again distinguished himself at the Battle of Yorktown. So at, at this point, that's that, right, the United States, this new country, doesn't really have the capability to produce I- engineers because at that time, engineering was really taught within the um, realm of the military sciences. And so this was Jefferson's way of rectifying that um, that shortfall. Well, when we come back, more with Colonel Ty Sedgley and with Lieutenant Colonel Sean Scully, and we're going to be talking for the hour about, well, all things West Point, because on this day in history, on March 16, 1802, West Point, well, West Point was born. More after these messages. This is Our American Story. Our American Stories, and for the hour, we're talking about all things West Point, and we're being joined by Colonel Ty Sedgley and also Lieutenant Colonel Sean Scully. And boy, these guys know a lot about history, American history, military history, and particularly, well, West Point history. Colonel Sedgley, I wanted to ask you about the many articles and books and chapters you've written in which you talk about the history of West Point. How did the institution develop? from where we just left off to now. And I want to talk particularly about leadership, too. But bring us up to speed on what's happened between those uh, between the early inception of West Point and the early idea about West Point. Uh, it's a, Lee, I'd love to talk about this. So West Point, uh, from 1802 to about 1817, had a couple of people graduating a year. It really wasn't a, 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 a powerful place, and it wasn't a place that had a coherent idea about what it was going to be. And then uh, President Monroe uh, appointed uh, uh, Sylvanius Thayer to be the superintendent. Uh, the superintendent is like the college president. And before he became 
the president, he went to France for two years, traveled around, bought books, really became immersed in the way that they taught in France, and particularly at Saint-Cyr, the French Academy. And with that two years of, of really immersive experience in education, came back to West Point in 1817 and served for 16 years, our longest-serving superintendent, and created what we think of today as the modern academy. And he changed it in fundamental ways um, that Yale and Harvard and others weren't doing. He focused on practical education, and that meant education in mathematics particularly, and then soon on, on, a, on an engineering uh, not just military engineering, but civil engineering as well. And he no longer taught the classics, which is Latin and Greek, and that's what Yale and Harvard were focused on. Instead, Thayer said, no, what we should do is teach French and make this a very practical education, not training, but still education. And then he decided we need small classes to do that in, which he developed something called the, what we call today the Thayer Method, and we still do. And that is small classes immersed in a subject uh, with daily, uh, uh, that, that we give testing almost daily to make sure that they are doing the, the learning. And then we discuss the learning during, during the class period itself. So he, he instituted this way of what they call then take boards. So the cadets would then go up to the boards, the chalkboards, and start writing math problems, very math heavy. And then he created a, a system of governance, which was a shared governance, that he had these fantastic, brilliant, uh, actually they weren't even called colonels, they were in the army in the rank of professor, and they stayed for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Uh, in fact, one great story about that is uh, Alfred Thayer uh, Mahan, I'm sorry, Dennis Hart Mahan, who was a professor here for, for 41 years, and when he was finally forced to retire, he didn't know what he was going to do, uh, forced to retire after 41 years, and, and actually jumped off a paddle boat headed to the city, committing suicide into the paddle wheel. But these long-serving people were here, and it created a system where, where character and intellect were the most important things that you could get from a West Point education. And up through the Civil War, that was it. Character and education, through mathematics, and going to church became the way that you developed an Army officer. Fascinating. Yeah. No, go ahead and continue. I'm, I'm, I stopped you there, but keep on going. No, no, no. So, so yeah, so the, the idea was that we have these great officers, and that, that, that found its way. Does it work? Well, we found, pointed at work. It worked in the Mexican-American War when Ulysses S. Grant, Robert E. Lee, Jefferson Davis, uh, all of the names that we would become associated with, um, uh, Sherman, Sheridan, became, we became associated with uh, in... Um, uh, the the Civil War first were used in the Mexican American War and and West Point became famous for for how its graduates did and helped particularly helping Winfield Scott in this amazing march from Veracruz uh, to Mexico City uh, when they were able to to defeat the greatest army of the time in, the, in this hemisphere. In fact, uh, Wellington, the great British general, um, said that Scott, there's no way Scott would be able to make this journey. But it was West Point graduates that helped do this. So finally, they're starting the, un the understanding that what does it take to be an Army officer? Does it take red-blooded American patriotism, or does it take a professional who has an education in the military? And so that, that is starting to change. And then we get to the Civil War, uh, where all of the, uh, the, the famous uh, generals on both sides, like 59 of the 60 generals on either side in the Civil War, uh, the major battles of the Civil War were West Point graduates. Now the understanding is, if not for West Point, there would be no United States of America because of Grant, Sherman, and Sheridan, uh, who, who really saved the Union and freed a race. 
Uh, so that, that idea of West Point as the focal point of the U.S. Army, uh, the home of the regulars, the home of the professionals, that's what that 19th century uh, West Point gave to us. It was a big century. And let's talk, Colonel Sedgley, about one other thing. Uh, since you're a senior officer who has commanded a battalion, can you briefly explain to the folks listening how the various groups of military personnel interact? What are the different roles of commissioned officers, non-coms, and enlisted men, and how do they all fit together? What's the master plan there? Why is it done the way it's done? Oh, that's a great point. So, so let's say if we have officers, which are lieutenants, captains, majors, lieutenant colonels, and colonels, uh, and then we have non-commissioned officers who are sergeants, and we have sergeant, staff sergeants, sergeant first class, master sergeant, sergeant's major. They're each on their own trajectory for promotion. Uh, and then soldiers. A soldier's a private, uh, a corporal, a specialist. And those, those are the private soldiers. And so within those three, they each have very distinct and at times overlapping roles as well. So officers uh, are commissioned. They are in charge of the Army. They are commissioned by the United States Congress to support and defend the Constitution against all enemies, uh, foreign and domestic. And so that oath of office we take to the Constitution is, and what we do is we do the planning, and we are in charge of the of the organization. So anything that goes wrong, it, it's it's on it's incumbent. We're we're responsible for that to the American people, to the client. Um, and so we we're, we because of our higher education level, we are planners, uh, and uh, and we have the moral responsibility within the units. The non commissioned officers, I think, it really have two maybe three major tasks. First, they're called the backbone of the United States Army. The reason that they're the backbone, other nations just don't have them. And, and they don't have the sense of professionalism that ours does, and the sense of education. In fact, there's lots of education that goes to become a sergeant now, and they're educated throughout their, uh, and trained throughout their, out their career. But they're really responsible, I think, for two things. They accomplish the mission, and they take care of soldiers. So the mission first, and then the soldier always. And they are they are, and they, the other thing they do is they educate they train officers. So as a second lieutenant, when I was a platoon leader, my sergeant, Sergeant First Class Brendan Allen, taught me to be a tank platoon leader. And so those that's what they they are accomplish the mission, take care of soldiers and soldiers, which are private specialists uh, in particular. Uh, they are they are the ones that do the task. So in the army. We arm the person. We arm the man. And everyone in the Army is there to support that 18- to 20-year-old infantryman who is actually fighting. It's an interesting difference between the Air Force, because the Air Force equips, they, they man the equipment. They have an F-16 fighting or an F-35, and they have everyone supporting that one officer. For us, we're supporting that enlisted soldier that's fighting. Yeah, it's actually the... And by the way, we had a great speech that featured General Peter Pace, and Pace had talked about precisely what you were talking about, Colonel. He's deployed to Vietnam, and what do you know? He, he's not sure what to do about certain things, and he's taking leadership guidance from one of the sergeants who'd been in Nam for a very long time. And so in the end, those guys are real professionals, uh, those non-coms, and the interaction between the commissioned officers and the non-commissioned uh, men in the field, well, that's a, it's a very interesting space indeed. When we come back, more with both colonels and we're talking about West Point for the hour here on Our American Stories on this day in history West Point was born in 1802 
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And for the hour, we're talking to two fine West Point folks, Colonel Ty Sedgley, who leads West Point's History Department, and Lieutenant Colonel Sean Scully, who's in charge of the American History Program at West Point. And both guys hold PhDs, and both have served our country as, uh, as officers as well. And I wanted to talk a bit about leadership, because the leadership tree that falls from West Point is remarkable. You were just rattling off a bunch of generals from the Civil War, Colonel Sedgley, and my goodness, World War I, World War II, we could go on and on. It's just remarkable. America wouldn't be America without West Point. I want to go to you first, Colonel Scully. What's in the water in West Point? Why was my dad bringing me there to watch what I was watching? I ended up being a captain of my high school basketball team in my sophomore year, and I think I learned a lot just by watching men lead other men at West Point. Talk about that, if you could. Absolutely. Well, I, you know, your father was bringing you here. My father was bringing me here as well. So my, my dad is a graduate class of 1970 from, from West Point. Um, and while I didn't go here, um, I grew up loving this place and, um, and really kind of revering it for all of the lessons that my father held so dear and then imparted into me in terms of, of honor, character, integrity, um, the honor code here, all of that was a part of, of my upbringing. And so when I came here to, to teach, um, first off, I, I thought it was such an amazing privilege. Second, I knew my father was going to be happy to have a free place to stay every time he wanted to That's come. Right. Yep. Um, but uh, but what, what I learned when I came here about what we do is we are, we are charged with the mission of educating, training, and inspiring cadets to become leaders of character for their nation. Um, and we do this in a variety of ways, but in the history department, we do this by um, helping the cadets investigate their past, the past of, the, of their nation, the past of other countries, in order to understand how to critically and creatively think through problems while learning empathy for people that are not like themselves uh, in a way to, um, to create that kind of understanding of human nature, of human behavior, so that they can, uh, when they're leading soldiers in difficult situations in foreign lands, they can deal with the kinds of problems that they're going to come up with, not just in a practical way, but in a moral and ethical way, uh, to represent their country as they should. And Colonel Sedgley, uh, to you, this, this leadership thing, and it's a, it's a big thing. I don't, I don't think there are many institutions left in America who actually teach it. You know, we did an hour on Major Dick Winters, and, and it was remarkable what the men said they learned from him. And what do you do? Do you, do you teach by example? Do you dig in and talk about how different men have led so folks can study other leadership styles? Talk about some of the mixes of education and mixes of approaches you take to get at this thing called leadership. I mean, you're getting these young men when they're 18 years old, and ultimately they're going to go out into the field at 22, and they're going to be in charge of grown men. It's an, it's an incredible thing. And, and part of it is our mission, you know, and, and Sean mentioned that, our mission is to educate, train, and inspire 
uh, our graduates to become leaders of character for the nation, to uphold the standards of duty, honor, country. It's an amazing aspirational mission statement. How in the world can we do that? I mean, it's almost impossible to take 18-year-olds to 22, have them four years, and have them ready to, uh, to lead soldiers in combat, in the crucible of ground combat. And there is nothing harder than, than war. There's nothing more complex, chaotic, dangerous, and unpredictable than war. Uh, and, and humans are the most complex, dangerous, chaotic, and unpredictable animals on the planet. How could we ever prepare them for that? And I, but boy, do we get after it. And it's not just Sean and me in our history classes. It is our officers that are in charge of them in the daily life, in the barracks. It's each other, that, that, that uh, the seniors in charge of the, of the plebes trying to, to, to educate them and train them and inspire them. It's our uh, behavioral science department. It's our physics department. It's our athletic department, our intramurals. Everywhere we go, we all have the same mission statement because every one of our graduates is going to leave here in, and go into the crucible of ground combat. And that keeps us really focused in a laser way of, of what we're going to do. And I think one of the ways that we do it in the history department is through stories and the, the talking about the way people did it in the past. And we are so lucky that we have West Point graduates in all the wars that we would study about American history. And, and so I certainly talk about Grant in the Civil War and what he had. And frankly, he didn't like his experience at West Point. But he still ended up getting the, both the intellect and the character. And that's what you get from a West Point, a West Pointer. We guarantee character and intellect. And Grant had that. Pershing in World War I, uh, Westmoreland, Schwarzkopf. And I said one story that I love telling is about Benjamin O. Davis, Jr., who graduated in 1936. He was the, the fourth African-American and the first uh, black officer to graduate from here in over 50 years. He was... Uh, shunned while he was here because of the racist time in America. And yet he graduated, uh, went on to lead the Red Hawks, the, the, the Tuskegee Airmen, became the first four-star general uh, in the Air Force, uh, and, and, a, and a, a, an amazing person. But those are the stories that we have of West Point graduates. We also have, uh, that I take them to show leadership into our memorial room. And the memorial room at West Point has the 1,558 names of West Point graduates who died in combat serving their nation. It's, uh, it's an awe-inspiring place to be. And there have been a thou- uh, sorry, 100 names that have died since 9-11. And, uh, and, and th- to look at those names, and, and I taught many of them, is uh, to have a sobering reminder of the mission that we have and what makes us different at West Point than every other school in the country. You know, Yale in World War I had 9,000 people that served in Yale in World War I, and they had 10 times the number of, of killed in action that we did at West Point in World War I. And yet, since the wars of 9-11 in Iraq and Afghanistan, we've had 100 die, and Yale's had no one die in uniform. So that's what makes us special, is the mission that we're going to do to, to put every one of the thousand graduates to be a, to become a, a second lieutenant in the United States Army. It's why we're special, and boy, do we take it seriously. We take it seriously by creating the best uh, leadership, uh, the, the best leadership that we can possibly do uh, in, in every way, shape, and form. I think the athletic is a big part of that. Intramurals are a big part of that. Competition is a big part of that. Ethics training, philosophy, math, you name it, everything we do here at West Point is to create uh, leaders of character for the nation. And Colonel Scully, one last question as we round out this hour. 
And uh, it gets to the point that Colonel Sedgley was just making about these young men who come here. These are Americans. These are ordinary Americans coming to West Point. And it's not the privileged. I mean, in the end, you've got to get in. There's a long line to get in. And a lot of these young men could be going to Yale and Harvard and Princeton. These are our best and our brightest. And they are basically signing up to essentially be prepared to go to war. Who are these young men and women? And talk about how inexhaustible that supply seems to be in this great country and how we're very different than a lot of other countries where the nobility and the noble and the high classes generally are the officers. But in America, it's a meritocracy. And West Point is, if anything, one of the great meritocracies left in this country. No, I, I would absolutely agree, Lee. Um, so, yes, the the men and women who are volunteering at, at the young ages of 18 and 19 years old to come here to West Point knowing that after um, they do their duty to the American people who are giving them this great education um, and this great training, that they're going to go out and serve the American people in in the most dangerous job in the world, but also the most rewarding because they get to serve with all of the other American sons and daughters who have enlisted in the Army um, or who, who have become commissioned into the Army through ROTC, uh, the the ROTC programs across the nation, or the officer candidate school for those non-commissioned officers who, who are going to be commissioned as officers. So they're amazing people. They're, they're young. They are very energetic. They are incredibly intelligent. Um, they, well, they're certainly smarter than I am, um, so it's always difficult to keep up with them. Um, and they, they, all they want to do is succeed at what they're doing now, so that they can succeed later on and take care of those men and women who they're going to be leading in combat in the future. Um, and we do, we do seem to have, I mean, it's very competitive to get into West Point. Um, I believe looking at the latest numbers, uh, 9% of those who applied were accepted. Um, we keep the, the classes fairly small uh, at about 1,250, um, and that's so that we can meet the needs of the Army, but also so we can keep our classrooms small and keep that education um, personal and, and impactful. And keep that standard high. Gentlemen, thank you both. Colonel Ty Sedgley, Lieutenant Colonel Sean Scully, both of West Point, celebrating for the hour with us here on Our American Stories, the birth of West Point in 1802. Thanks so much, gentlemen. Thank you, Lee. Thank you, Lee. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. On this day in history in 1802, West Point was born.
is Our American Stories, and we love to bring you great love stories. And they're generally between human beings. But we've occasionally brought you the love story between someone and their pet. My favorite was Jimmy Stewart going on the Johnny Carson Show to perform a poem about Bo, his beloved dog who had passed away, bringing Johnny and all who watched it to tears. You can hear this incredible moment on our website. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Just search for our hour-long celebration of Jimmy Stewart's life, and it's part of that great celebration. And our own Alex Cortez has discovered a new collection of love letters to pets that we'll be featuring. Tell us about it, Alex. So, Lee, there's a group of folks in my hometown of Chicago who've gotten together and decided to create a coffee table book. I think they were inspired by Kramer. Yep. And um, it's, it's their, it's their uh, love letters to their pets, and all the profits are going towards removing dogs uh, from puppy mills that treat uh, them poorly. And you can check out and buy the book at the chicagopetprojectbook.com. But today we're going to start by bringing you one of those love letters. It's actually from Miss Illinois in 2014, Randy Moxie. And it's to her dog, Brando, who is a pit bull mix. Let's take a listen. Dearest Brando, when we first laid eyes on you in that cage, it was clear in your eyes that you just didn't understand why you didn't have any people to look after. That's your job. Where were they? It was evident in your thinned out frame and thinning hair that the anxiety of having no one to love had just about eaten you up. And you looked up with a spark of hope. And it was in your eyes, like you knew you had found your people. And you put your paw in my hand. Over the years, you have brought more blessings into my life than you could ever know. I look at you and I see a dog whose jugular vein was ripped out by his own brother but still loves all dogs and people unconditionally. You've shown me how God wants us to be happy, forgiving, loving, playful, and appreciative. I vow to take care of you and keep you safe for all the days of your life. When I'm sick, You are by my side with your paw in my hand. When I wake from a bad dream, I find your paw in my hand. When I am stressed out, you come to me with a smiley face, a waggy tail, and a tug hanging out of your mouth, irresistibly forcing me to take a break and play. Even when you are on the job at your lookout post and securing the perimeter of our home, You take breaks to come in and check on your people. You are so far beyond intelligent and loyal. I cannot thank you enough for all the love, hope, comfort, and strength you have given me. It's you and me till the end. With your paw in my hand. All my love. Mommy. All right, now that's someone really tight <laughs> with their animal. Wow. wow, that was sad. I mean, but hey, look, I, you can't laugh because listen to Jimmy Stewart. He was crying. He didn't seem to have quite the love interest that this one seemed to be holding the paw and all. But you know what? Everybody's reaction to their animal is different. What What do you got next, Alex? So there's another fascinating guy, Doctor Nicolosi. He's actually a practicing dentist who's also known as the artist to the stars. He's done portraitures 
ranging from Gary Sinise to Meryl Streep. They've been featured on Entertainment Tonight all the, around all the major award shows. And his love letter is to his pet alpacas <laughs> that are named Secretariat in Citron. Citron? Citron? Yeah, Citron. Yeah. And in case you're unfamiliar with the alpaca, it's a South American animal that looks like a small llama. An animal that we're actually celebrating today on the kickoff of the National Alpaca Show in Denver. And let's take a listen to Dr. Nicolosi. An Ode to Alpaca <laughs> by Dr. Nicolosi. <laughs> How do I begin oh, to express the words in my heart <laughs> and the depth of my gratitude for all you impart? My words poetic are at times quite pathetic, yet I always have found it best to just get them right off my chest and to not let them rest unexpressed. From the moment I met you, in the middle of last year, grazing gently on clover way out in the pasture. You've taught me to relish and to savor every moment complete with each of God's creatures that we may encounter or meet. As we now stroll on our walks, past gander, past geese, we may pause for a rest with my head on your fleece. You grow it all year through every season and storm. Come springtime you stand as it is lovingly shorn. Besides the bounty of love that you give back to the Father, you give up your precious fiber without the least bit of bother. The raw fleece is then clean, then woven, then worn. And your love carries on, keeping all of us warm. The life lessons you've taught me, a fortune could never have bought me. To you I owe the sweetest of debts, because you are, dear alpaca, the bestest of pets. So there you have it, the words to the song in my heart. Thank you most for a love that I knew from the start. Wow. Wow. Thank you for that, Alex. <laughs> that was special. That touched us. That touched us. And that was, of course, Dr. Nicolosi's love letter to his pet alpaca. And, of course, we had before that, oh, Miss Illinois of 2014 choking up, just thinking about the love of her life, her dear little pet. Brando, her dog. And that's it for now. The Chicago Pet Project book. And that's what we do here in Our American Stories. We bring it to you. The sad, the sublime, and sometimes the just plain silly. This is Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, and every once in a while we want to lighten it up in a segment. We mash together a few light stories. Sometimes they're uplifting stories that we'll mash together. These are light. And recently, our producer Jesse came across a story in the news about a pet squirrel that defended he and his owners from a burglar. Here's that story. In Meridian, Idaho, Adam Pearl walked into his home on Tuesday realized something didn't seem quite right. I came in the front door and, well, I saw snow prints out in the front driveway going to the back of the house. And so I thought something was awry because nobody usually goes through the yard. Pearl was immediately greeted by his pet squirrel named Joey when he got home. But then he started noticing a few doors that would normally be closed were open. After making his way to the back bedroom, his fear was confirmed once he looked at his gun safe. I started looking at it, and I saw the scratches that were around the walking area. Um, and I, at that point, I knew somebody was definitely in here messing around. Pearl then called Meridian Police, and when Officer Ashley Turner came out to take a look, Joey the Squirrel just had to say hello. Um, and during her investigations, uh, Joey had run in the bedroom just screwing around like he always does between her legs and kind of startled her and uh, she says whoa what was that ah, don't worry about that that's that's just joey pet squirrel you know turner then asked pearl if joey would bite i said well he usually doesn't bite but you never know because he is a squirrel <laughs> officer turner went on her way only to return a few hours later with some of pearl's stolen belongings and some unbelievable news. She said while she was questioning the individual, uh, he had scratches on his hand. So he, she asked him, so did you get that from the squirrel? And he says, yeah, damn thing kept attacking me. It wouldn't stop until I left. <laughs> Joey the squirrel is now being hailed a hero. Nobody can believe it because who can say they have a squirrel that guards their house, which is crazy. You can't ask for much more than that. He's a pain in the butt, but he's great. <laughs> Pearl said he then thanked his pet squirrel, Joey, by giving him Whoppers candies, his favorite treat. We're still working on the being nice to people part, but maybe I shouldn't work on that too much because he obviously took care of the house. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. I love Whoppers too, Jesse. Yeah. That's a great story. You love those animal stories, don't you? I do. I know. You ever heard anybody about a pet squirrel? I haven't. You'd think they'd bite the hell out of you. <laughs> I mean, I've had squirrels in my house once when I was a kid. They tore the place up. Yeah, they're kind of squirrely. They are squirrely. And now we go to a, well, just a light story right here in our own town. Uh, we're in Oxford, Mississippi. This is flyover country. We're about an hour south of Memphis. Great musical part of the world. Short drive to Nashville, short drive to New Orleans, short drive to Memphis. Does it get any better than that for people who love music? And it's a sports town because it's home of Ole Miss. And that's SEC football and that's SEC everything. College football that is the best kind. And here's a segment that happened on a radio show, a local radio show here in town and around Mississippi called Head to Head. And it's a sports show. And I actually know the guys who do it. They're good guys. And the show is set up to interview former Ole Miss football player Denzel Kamdichie, a big star, a great player. They had him on the line, and we're about to begin what they expected to be, well, just a normal old interview. Let's take a listen and see what happened. 
He is on your radio this afternoon. Denzel, appreciate uh, a few minutes of your time. How are you? <laughs> Denzel, you there? <laughs> this is not going as well as I had hoped. <laughs> I think he's asleep. That's better. The phone in his ear. Hey, Denzel, you there? <laughs> okay, this he's is... asleep. I don't think this is going to work. No, I don't think it's going to work. It's working perfectly. <laughs> this is great. For a morning great. show, that's gold. <laughs> that is gold. That goes in the that goes in the best of CD. Actually, it's not even a morning show. You'll hear it next. That's oh, what gotcha. that's what they found even funnier about this. It wasn't the morning. <laughs> that is. <laughs> And the host of this radio show, and again, it's head-to-head, and Richard Cross and his pal, well, they didn't know how to respond. There's great stars on the air, except, well, he's not on the air. Let's take a listen to their reaction after hearing their guest fell asleep. <sighs> Should I say it? Well, I'm not going to say it. No, don't. Just just let it go. Um, <laughs> Rhino, is he answering when we, as we call back? You're trying. One more I'm time. I'm trying, but I'm, I'm not getting anything. Okay. Okay. Well, let's just move on. Uh, oh, that's not to work okay. out. I mean, it's it's early in the day. It's, <laughs> of course, it is 4.20 p.m. as opposed to 4.20 <laughs> no. um, All right. So, <laughs> where do you even go with that? Oh, that's hilarious. I'd have just kept them on the line. I would have, too. Kept tuning in. I, uh, no, you get pot the, up the fader exactly, every couple minutes. Exactly. You get the Jeopardy clock going. You do an over-under <laughs> bet on how long he'll be asleep. Get people to call in and scream at him. You could have gone in so oh. many direct. These amateurs. I would have milked that for an hour. Oh, that's an hour of radio. That's why we love radio. You never know what's going to happen. That's one of the most highly conditioned athletes in America asleep at 4.30 in the afternoon for an interview. By the way, Denzel Kimdichie later tweeted, quote, I had been up in studio all night wrapping up my music project, and I did fall asleep while on the radio. Well, you know, we, we sort, of, sort of busted on that one. And uh, last but not least, our favorite guy, Stephen Goldberg's dreams. You heard that right. We're going to hear a dude's daydreams. And not just any dude, one of our favorite dudes. Steve is the former chairman of the sociology department at City College. And he is the foremost expert on patriarchy and a guy who he daydreams a lot. And now we bring you Steve and his latest daydream. And before we do that, Steve reads us his mandatory disclosure. These are all real daydreams that I have had over the past seven decades. They are not written in the sense that one paces the floor at five in the morning trying to write a daydream about X, Y, or Z. These daydreams all simply arrived fully formed, poppied into my head unexpectedly. That's the wonderful thing about daydreams. They require no talent at all. At least back then, and for all I know to this day, The state of Maine was quite a strange place. For example, the potato was king. School started much later in the year than it did anywhere else uh, so that kids could harvest potatoes. More relevant here, there were plenty of trains, but the trains were only for potatoes. There were no trains for people. For most people, this was an inconvenience, perhaps a major inconvenience. But they had access to planes and cars. 
At least most of them did. But not a little girl named Diana. Diana's parents um, were poor and didn't own a car, nor could they afford plane fare. A train ticket was within reach, but trains were, as mentioned, only for potatoes. For little Diana, the situation was a disaster. See, Diana um, had contracted a, an excruciatingly painful disease, uh, one that, that could be fatal if not treated with a protocol available only um, at a hospital in Atlanta, Georgia. People were sympathetic, but the law was undeniably clear. The trains were only for potatoes. Despite this, a young lawyer took Diana's case pro bono. Uh, though realizing it was in all likelihood hopeless, hopeless. If that were not bad enough, the lawyer soon learned that the case was to be heard by Judge Crockett, a judge known for brutally uh, rigid allegiance to a literal interpretation of the law. The lawyer looked dejected and Diana forlorn as the case lasted but a few minutes, and the judge rendered his decision. Maine law limits the use of trains to potatoes and prohibits their use by human beings. This is clear beyond the possibility of dispute or contradiction. That is the law. All I can add is, she looks like a potato to me. Oh boy. <laughs> These are out there, folks, and we just love them. So when Stephen Goldberg sends us one of his daydreams, we do them. And by the way, I love the pet squirrel named Joey. And I like that he named the pet squirrel named Joey. Just an ordinary war, uh, an ordinary name for an ordinary pet. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Just some light stuff. We do it every once in a while. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org, OurAmericanNetwork.org, to hear and see all that we do. This is Lee Habib with Our American Stories, and it's time for our weekly Final Thoughts segment, when we hear the final thoughts from people who are dying, and or final thoughts from folks about their loved ones who just died. A eulogy, a written tribute, anything that stirs the soul, and these in the end are just great biographies. That's what they are, but by the people who are closest to them. And people often that no one would pick up a pen to write a biography about, but who are just as important as those people who we do go to the bookstore and read about, because they impacted so many people's lives. And today we bring you a special final thought story or tribute, featuring the tribute of others to a great man, a great statesman, a great man of faith that's important to us here on this show. He recently passed at 79 years of age. 
the late Colorado Senator Bill Armstrong, who later in his career became the president of Colorado Christian University. He was born on this day in history in 1937. Let's take a listen. You know, it's often been said that you can't tell the measure of a tree until it's cut down and you have to count the rings. And in the same way, you can't tell the measure of a person until they die and like a cut tree, you count the rings. And this morning, we've been counting the rings of William L. Armstrong. I guess the conservative is thought of as sort of a three-piece suit with uh, maybe some money who is... uh was doing everything. You're the only one that has on a three-piece <laughs> suit. <laughs> there was an old joke in the Senate when Bill was there that Bill really didn't need a staff. He just had one so that the other senators wouldn't feel bad. Colorado Senator Bill Armstrong became President Bill Armstrong of Colorado Christian University, as his friend Terry Considine remembers. In 2006, Bill called with the news that he had accepted the call to become CCU president. I offered to help to Bill help in any way I can, but I just can't serve on the board. I'm just too busy right now. Bill said, okay, Terry, I understand that. Would it be okay if I prayed for you to change your mind. Please don't. Please don't, Bill. When I reported to Betsy, she wisely advised, call Bill back. You know he'll win in the end. You can't say no to him. And I know Betsy's always right. And I know there are an awful lot of us here today who just could not say no to Bill Armstrong. And CCU is a remarkable institution. But for me, it was the opportunity to watch Bill in action. And it was a tutorial in organizational leadership that uh, was worth far more than the most advanced degree from the finest business school. After each meeting, I would come back to my own work with a long list of what I could do better. Dad traveled every single week. But the wonderful thing was, when he came home, he was home. He was really present with us, taught me to do cartwheels and taught me to ride the bike and went jogging with me and just was a regular, normal dad. I'm crazy about him. I ran for Congress a few years back and he gave me some great advice about campaigning. He said in that booming radio voice, people imitate my dad. It's kind of funny how how we all do this, but he said in that booming radio voice, he goes, you know, Will... If you give 100 speeches, 50 will be better than the other 50. I thought words to live by. I mean, I get it. That made sense to me. Bill Armstrong. A life well lived. Here's Bill Armstrong's daughter, 
Annie Nordby. Dad was born in eastern Nebraska, Fremont. Had a radio show in Beatrice, Nebraska as a young man, I think about 11 years old. Characterized himself as a college drop-in. Um, he dropped in when he was in Minneapolis to college, and he dropped into Tulane when he was in New Orleans, and he dropped into DU when he was here in Denver. Here's his son, Will Armstrong. I came home from college and shared with him an interesting class I was taking, quantitative methods. And he generally seemed interested in it, which at the time, you know, I could not understand why would he be interested in that. But about three months later, I came home from from college and saw that he had purchased my textbook and he'd begun teaching himself quant. Wow. He was an amazing guy. was a businessman very early in his early 20s, bought a radio station, KOSI. And I think that's when he was first approached uh, to, to run for office. Somebody came up to him and said, hey, Bill, we don't have a candidate. And he said, okay. <laughs> and that's kind of how it all started. Armstrong became the youngest member of Colorado State House of Representatives at 25 years old. And only a few years later, became the youngest majority leader of the state senate ever and then became one of the youngest members of the united states house of representatives but it all wasn't enough for him here's the president of the reformed theological seminary dr don sweeting he said remember what happened to me he started life in search for money position and power it was centered on that and on himself and He had all he dreamed of by age 30, and he didn't feel successful. It wasn't enough. He was crumbling on the inside, and that's when that Alabama dentist showed up in his office. Not a clergyman, not a constituent. Bill was put off by this guy. He was embarrassed by his direct approach. The man said, Bill, where do you stand with Jesus Christ? Kind of awkward And for some reason, he thought, seeing the light in his office of a vote on the floor, I could get out of this really fast. But he didn't. As many American legends have done, Bill Armstrong embraced the uncomfortable as the only way to grow. The dentist stayed with him and would lead to the most profound of changes. Here's the prominent former political reporter, Lynn Bartles. As Congress was fighting the debt ceiling in 2013, my good friend Dick Wadhams, who's Colorado's political historian, passed on a New York Times story he knew I would enjoy. It was a 1983 feature on U.S. Senator Bill Armstrong and his brand of conservatism. And the newspaper wrote about Armstrong. In one sense, the senator is a missionary, preaching the gospel of fiscal rectitude to the heathens on Capitol Hill. But in another sense, he is a pragmatist who knows how to count votes and when to accept a deal. The Colorado Senator told the Times, I'm relatively inflexible on principles, but I'm flexible on the details. Have I changed my inner self? And here's what Armstrong told the New York Times. The answer is yes. Sometimes I'm very comfortable now with people whose political views are very different from my own. And that was hard for me 10 years ago. Until you've had some of the rough edges knocked off, it's awfully easy to be brash and to feel like you've got all the answers. But as you gain more experience, you realize nobody has all the answers. 
and that fosters a degree of intellectual humility. A newfound humility that came from his newfound faith. A longtime reporter who covered him once said, after Bill Armstrong got very religious, he also got very tolerant. Before it was my way or the highway. But after that, he said, you know, other people have views, let's listen to them. I thought that was interesting. Some people, when they get religion, you know, get a little more rigid, but he got a little more understanding. So understanding that he picked up every type of phone call. The guy never not returned a phone call, (laughs) even if he knew it was going to be a bad story. And more on the life of Bill Armstrong after these messages. This is Our American Stories. our American stories and we've been talking about the life of Bill Armstrong, Colorado Senator, President of Colorado Christian University who recently passed at the age of 79 our final thought segments are sometimes about famous people sometimes about locally prominent people, sometimes just ordinary folks and in the end we're all ordinary folks, some with more title and more stature and more wealth But in the end, we're all people. And we love talking about the life of a person through a eulogy, a written tribute, or almost anything that stirs the soul. And this is one of those occasions where we used a combination of just about everything. We did some phone interviews. We pulled some sound from eulogies. Went onto the web and found other testimonials. But like the original speaker had said about that tree cut down and they were looking at the rings oh my goodness as we continue with this story you'll hear more and more about how a renowned and renewed faith stirred bill armstrong to more humility and to more tolerance and for me and i've met the man twice and spent a couple of hours on both occasions uh what was remarkable to me was how engaged he was in the person standing in right in front right in front of him. It was really a, a beautiful thing. He was born on this day in history in 1937. Let us continue now with the story of Bill Armstrong. Senator Armstrong fought for and won the indexing of tax rates to inflation for the first time ever, preventing high inflation from unfairly pushing taxpayers into higher tax brackets. When they see me coming down the street, people are going to say, Here comes that guy that wants to cut my taxes. Disabled persons uh, all over the country are being thrown off the Social Security rolls because of a quirk in the law. There's a lady by the name of May Reeser. She contacted my office and we developed a bill and within four months we got the bill through the House, through the Senate, signed by the President. The most important thing was people to have benefits so they would not lose what they had worked for all those years. And this is what Bill Armstrong helped us do. Here's Colorado Senator Cory Gardner. 
Senator Bill Armstrong went to meet with the Refuseniks, uh, as they came to be known, Jewish people living in the Soviet Union who were being persecuted for their views and wanted to leave the Soviet Union for a better life. He went there without contacting his staff, without letting them know how he was, where he was, because he was afraid that the KGB would find out the work that he was doing, the harm that it could cause to the people he was meeting with, and perhaps even to the staff back home. But he knew he had to bring that message of what was happening in the persecution in the Soviet Union. He had to bring that back to his colleagues in the Senate to make sure they understood and could put an end to the tragedy that was happening in the Soviet Union. Having never graduated from college, it was the last thing on Bill's mind when he was approached to become the president of Colorado Christian University. Bill served as the president of CCU from 2006 to 2016. He called his work at the university the most significant, energizing, and rewarding work I have ever undertaken. During his tenure, the school prospered with enrollments more than doubling, and the American Council of Trustees and Alumni ranking CCU at the top 2% of colleges nationally for its core curriculum four years in a row. Here's Colorado Christian CFO, Dan Coors. He worked every Saturday. Every Saturday. I mean, it, it, this was just another day. And I asked him one time, I said, why is it you work every Saturday? And he looked right at me with a smile and he said, haven't you read in Exodus, six days thou shalt work? <laughs> as great as my pop is, uh, the real secret to the Armstrong family is my mom. And I don't think that my dad would have gotten half as far, uh, as great as he is, without, without my mom. Here's former Colorado Senator, Hank Brown. I think Bill's strength uh, ultimately is not just that the great success he's had, whether it's in business or uh, in at Colorado Christian University or in, in politics in the Senate or state legislature. I think his real success has come in the example he set for others. An example that impacted others an example that others could look up to and strive for. Bill Armstrong achieved many things on this earth, but more importantly, he influenced many people on this earth. Takes the responsibility of being the patriarch so seriously. Man, he looks out for those kids. He guides them, he's always available, he wants to give them advice. He's, he's really a tremendous grandpa. What a role model for them, just as he's always been for me and Will. We found that we both love to read. And that began a relationship that was uh, kind of a challenge at times because I would get five or ten books a year from Bill for almost 40 years. Keeping up with that was, was not always easy. I've never seen such a lovely marriage in my life. He calls her kiddo. Um, every single morning, a hug and a kiss, and how are you? And we saw how they were a team and how they connected together, and they set an example for Betsy and Mia, a, a relationship to which we aspire. This guy was out of Congress forever, and his former staff was still meeting and gathering, and that is an influence that's really felt through the years. Here's one of those former Armstrong staff members, Greg Walcher. Last month in Denver, I attended a remarkable event. 
a simple reunion of people who once worked for U.S. Senator William L. Armstrong. There were dozens of people there sharing fond memories and funny stories of what most still consider the best years of their lives. I spent 10 unforgettable years on his Washington, D.C. staff. Like everyone else there, I have since been associated with numerous other organizations and foundations that do wonderful work. But none of them have regular reunions, nor have the people in those other organizations stayed in close touch or been together frequently. But former Armstrong staffers always have. Bill Armstrong wasn't able to attend this last reunion because of his health. He was in his fifth year of battling cancer. He had every reason to sit back and take it easy. But he believed he had a pretty spectacular retirement package in heaven. And he wanted to serve the Lord and others till the end. He wanted to die at his desk, as he told many of us, to remain at his post. And he had health issues that you would never know about, but he wouldn't quit. I remember going up to him and saying, Bill, how are you? And he'd say, I'm doing great. It's just my body's not cooperating. He liked the story because he never wanted to retire. My dad always wanted to be productive for God's kingdom. And as it turned out, I took my dad to the CCU office just 12 days before his death. He would have liked the way that that turned out. Three weeks ago, Bill and I sat together talking about his imminent death. He was secure in his faith and impatient that he hadn't finished all that he wanted to do. I offered to help thinking there might be some small task, some errand to be run. Instead, he showed me his list, 146 items. He was working until the very end. Then he said, the best time of his life has been that last month. Visits from all the grandkids, his sister, nieces, nephews, and friends. The touch of mom's hand on his face. Me laughing like a lunatic in the house. Will, Christy, and the kids just dropping by for no reason. Imagine that. The man who taught himself algebra. Why? But he did. Who advised presidents and who was a successful businessman. He knew the truth of what was important in this life and he never looked back. And last of all, here's Bill Armstrong's colleague, the Vice President of Public Policy at Colorado Christian, John Andrews. It's fitting that his last night on earth was Independence Day. For he lived our country's founding principles as few others have. And what a story and what a thing to say to family members that the best time of your life would be the last month with terminal cancer. My goodness. And again, anyone who'd ever met him, you just met an engaged guy in the world. And when you're running a college, you've got to be. You've got to be with those kids. And again, you see this with Dr. Larry Arn at Hillsdale College. You will see the same thing. The mission is those kids, and they're his kids. And so often, people who believe in free enterprise and faith don't come off as human. And that's, well, that's our fault. Um, But Bill taught us all how to do that how to walk that walk, and as someone had said toward the end, he was secure in his faith, but impatient that he hadn't done 
all that he could do. And but for that all of us of faith walked and talked like Bill Armstrong. Decent, tolerant, a beautiful man, a beautiful life. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Our final thoughts. Colorado Senator Bill Armstrong. And most importantly, the work he did with boys and girls at the Colorado Christian University. Final thoughts.